they asked if I had ever donated blood before. And I said, you know, I haven't, not since I was 18, I haven't really been able to, and I'm a little nervous and a little excited. And um, the, the next response was, why haven't you been able to? And I, I've passed all the screenings at this point, right? I've passed two rounds of questions from two different organizations. I've had my blood tested. I've been re-swabbed. Uh, I've, I've seen the FDA announcement. And I just assumed I was in the clear. And so without really hesitating or thinking about it, I just responded, I'm a gay man. And immediately after I said that, the look in the eyes of the person that I was speaking with changed uh, in, in, a, in a very clear way. Um, it became cold. And the response back to me was, well, you won't be donating today. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. When I last spoke to Lucas Estock, he was my guest for a bonus episode about the COVID-19 experience. You can find that under the title, Surviving Coronavirus. At the time, Lucas told me about what it was like to get coronavirus and what it was like to recover from it and how he was feeling. When I spoke with him, he was about to donate his plasma for antibody study and possible therapy. When he showed up to donate his plasma, he was told he would not be able to donate his plasma that day because he was a gay man. His story was recently featured on Good Morning America and The Daily Show, as well as a whole bunch of other news outlets. And I'm so happy he's here to fill me in on his story now. Hey, Lucas, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. How are things? That's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> things, things are overall great right now. It's been a really, it's been a surreal few weeks since we last spoke. Yeah, I can tell from your posts and just from all the news that your story has generated that you must be really busy. So when I last spoke with you, you were getting ready to find out what was going to happen with your plasma donation. And for anyone who hasn't heard that episode yet, you can listen to it on the Surviving Coronavirus episode with Lucas Estock, and that is in the COVID-19 Experience bonus episode three. So when we last spoke, you had been... Well, actually, we don't. I don't think we even talked about your no, plasma. No, uh, at that point, I was in the process of being screened so that I could, you know, find out whether or not I was a potential candidate for donation to begin with. Um, so, as a part of my recovery, a lot of my friends and family began sending me um, notices from Mount Sinai that they were beginning to put together a convalescent plasma research program, meaning that they were going to be looking for recovered COVID patients to, uh, okay. who had antibodies to donate their plasma so that they could begin a research into whether or not that plasma could be used to boost the immune systems of mm -hmm. severe COVID patients. Um, from my understanding, this is something that has been going on since the, I think the 1890s is when this type of therapy was first mm -hmm. developed or started. Uh, so this isn't a new procedure. It's just unknown whether or not it will mm -hmm. work with coronavirus. Um, and so I, I reached out to Mount Sinai immediately as I was you know, feeling fully recovered and asked to, if I could be considered to join the, the 
the program. Um, and they responded uh, back and they, you know, invited me to come and be retested for the virus to have samples of my blood taken. So, so as I was starting this, um, as I was starting the application process, um, mm-hmm. the FDA made an announcement regarding the ability for gay and bisexual men and men who have sex with men to donate blood and plasma. Uh, it's been a longstanding uh, sort of ban and deferral on on the ability for mm-hmm. us to do that, uh, and this is going back to the AIDS crisis. And and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of science and no longer science as to whether or not um, you know gay and bisexual men carry a higher risk for HIV transmission. And as a result, uh, for, uh, up until I think 2015, gay and bisexual men, if they'd ever had sexual contact with another man, weren't allowed to donate ever. You did it. You, you had sex once, and it was a lifetime ban. I don't know how many people knew about that. I think for some people, it's a real surprise. I mean, of course, a lot of people are aware of that ban, but if you don't know about it, when you hear about it, it just sounds so archaic. Yeah, there's a there's a longer story to you know that has been told, but deserves to be retold um, about kind of the the stigma of HIV being a, a gay disease and how that has kind of you know been pervasive throughout our culture uh, for as long as we've been aware of, of the, the virus and had a name for it. Um, and that stigma still lingers. Uh, and so for me, it was, I actually didn't realize until recently that the, the deferral from a lifetime ban to a one-year ban, which is where we've been, uh, only changed in 2015, I think. And that that's a shockingly recent period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the beginning of April, uh, April 2nd, I believe, which was the day that I was going uh, into Mount Sinai to have my my uh, blood mm-hmm. taken to test for antibodies and to be re-swabbed for the coronavirus, the FDA made an announcement that, uh, you know, given the urgent and immediate need for blood and plasma donations from recovered uh, COVID patients, they were going to relax that one-year deferral down to three months. Um, I, you know, I think most people believe that it's still an unacceptable deferral uh, to be putting on uh, a swath of our community and kind of painting them with a broad brush that that is that is undeserved. Especially when you know medical professionals of every stripe are are pleading with the FDA that risk based assessments are a far more uh, necessary and effective way of determining whether or not people are are are, are qualified donors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that that being said, and given the very specific and circumstances of my life, having been ill uh, and having kind of a, a busy work schedule and having just moved, I, I fall within that three month deferral. I'm I'm you know I'm clear. I haven't had <laughs> this is a weird thing I just put <laughs> into the world. I haven't had sex in a little bit. Um, and right. I know it's kind and of so. Hello. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know when they when they made that announcement. Um, the conversation I'd been having with myself up until that point was, you know, if I'm a qualified donor, uh, <clears throat> if I lie and I'm a qualified donor, other than the fact that I know I'm healthy, uh, should I still donate? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So I-, I was I was kind of debating with myself whether or not I would donate, even if it was a 12-month deferral. Mm-hmm. And though I knew I-, I maybe, you know, I wouldn't qualify under that deferral. I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. I know I am. Mm -hmm. I get tested regularly by my doctor. I I keep very close tabs on my personal health. Mm -hmm. Probably more more than a lot of other people who take for granted their health. Yeah. And like you you probably I I mean, I don't get tested for I don't get tested for that ever. 
I did a long time ago and I don't ever get tested for that. And like, you're on top of it. I get tested every three months. And part of that is just growing up, you know, growing up gay, growing up queer and having that kind of that stigma kind of born into you that kind of, you know, you might be, you're, you're a little bit dirty just because of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, tangentially when I first and the only time I've ever donated blood was when I was 18 and they were doing a blood drive in my high school. I had not been sexually active uh, at that point in my life. And I remember filling out the questionnaire and getting to the question, which at that point meant it was a lifetime ban uh, and getting to that mm-hmm. question, have you ever uh, had sex with another man? And just knowing right there that if if I had checked yes, uh, it meant I couldn't ban, I couldn't donate. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, checking no, uh, but then living mm-hmm. with this sense of anxiety and waiting mm-hmm. for the day when after I donated, the letter in the mail with my donor card would actually just be a letter letting me know that they had rejected my blood. Um, that they had detected, right. they had detected HIV in my blood, or that they somehow knew I was gay, even though I wasn't sexually active. That's the anxiety I lived with for weeks after after seeing that question. Yeah, and I think I think it's important because it's not something. I mean, not everyone has donated blood, and not everyone has to face you know answering this question, right? But I think it's really important to think about oneself as having something to offer that sustains life, whether it's plasma or blood. Having this gift just naturally within your body that you would like to share because you know it can be useful and then being told no we don't want it you know that's it, it's it's like important to take a moment and actually try to experience that for a second yeah yeah and and listen at the time when i was 18 like i knew i was out at that point um you know to my friends and i was you know within a month or two of actually coming out just broadly um to my hometown. Um, but at that time I had very little understanding about what it meant really to be, you know, gay. And, uh, so just knowing that the fact that I could be gay was enough for them to say, we're not willing to accept a donation from Mm -hmm. you. That was, you know, that was, uh, that was, that has psychological impact. Um, so fast forward, you know, it's been 18 more years and I have never been able to donate. Um, Mm -hmm. and here the FDA is Mm -hmm. saying, you know what, you actually, you do qualify given your circumstances Mm -hmm. right now. Um, I went to Mount Sinai, I showed up a little bit, you know, nervous as to whether or not I was going to have to answer a question that was going to put me in a compromising position. And I didn't that day. I arrived and I, at the check-in point, which had been sent up, set up just for this this convalescent plasma program, I got to the nurse to you know uh, let them know I was I was reporting in, and there was a sign that they had printed and posted at the check-in station, and it said or made clear that Mount Sinai respected and acknowledged all forms of gender identity, and there was a, a pride flag on the sign, and I just remember thinking, oh, so so we might be. We might be in a good territory here. This is this is cool, um, mm. and they didn't ask me any questions that I had I had to answer that were uncomfortable uh, that day. They, it was really just mm-hmm. uh, when yeah. were you first sick? When were you last sick? When was your positive diagnosis for COVID nineteen? Mm-hmm. Um, they reswabbed me, which is still something I uh, <laughs> am not used to. <laughs> I can't, anytime anyone brings that up, you know, I can't let it go because I still remember mine from, you know, January. Like I still feel it when I was being swabbed for the flu. It's just, oh, 
Terrible. Yeah, this is... Ugh. So anyway, so that happened. Uh, but they were wonderful. The staff was great. They took samples of my blood. And uh, two days later, I got a call saying that I had tested negative for the virus, which was a really cool thing to just have confirmed for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a day after that, I got a call saying that I had tested uh, positive for a sufficiently high level of antibodies, mm-hmm. um, that they they were you know they were willing to accept me as a, a candidate, and that I um, they wanted to put me through a few screening questions, and that I would hear back from them soon. Yeah. So the next day they called, they put me through what I kind of understand to be a list of very standard donor screening questions, you know about whether you've traveled, what kind of medications you might have been taking, medical history, things like that. And I was waiting for the question about, um, you know, whether or not I've had sexual contact with another man. I, I was waiting because I wanted to see if it was going to be a three-month question or a 12-month question. Mm, mm-hmm. And it was the last question they asked. And uh-huh. when it came to it, they asked whether or not I had had sexual contact with another man in the last three months. Mm-hmm. And so I answered no. Uh, and with that, they said, listen, you're you're going to be hearing from the New York Blood Center, and they're going to schedule an appointment with you to come donate. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. And that was the end of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And the next day, I got a call from the New York Blood Center, and they put me through the same screening questions. Uh, and the last question still, again, was the uh, men who have sex with men question, and it was three months. And I thought, okay, we are in the clear. They invited me to make an appointment, which I did for the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just kind of got ready to go in, and I was a little nervous. I haven't donated since I was eighteen. It's right. been half my life, right? So it's uh, more than just a donation. I mean, I think that's that's important to highlight, right? It, it means a yeah. lot. Yeah, it did, and you know, I it felt. Uh, I don't really know. I was excited. I was mm-hmm. nervous. I stayed up late that night. <laughs> I oh, was, wow. The night before, I was like, "Oh no, I got to get rest." I know this is so silly, maybe sounding, but I was just. It felt like, I don't know, a big thing. It felt like I was going on a trip. <laughs> yes. Um, well, of course. It's like a big, it's a big thing, A, to like sur- to survive coronavirus and then to be able to be of use and then to be able to donate blood finally. Yeah. So so I went. Uh, they brought me into kind of like a general, there's a general kind of entrance holding area for people where they were checking temperatures. They gave me a disposable thermometer and there was someone else there to donate same for him. Uh, we were both okay. And so they brought us into the actual waiting room where there were five or six staff members for the blood center kind of working in and around this waiting room space. And there were, was the other donor who came with me and I believe one other in the waiting room already. And starting with uh, the other donors, they kind of went down and asked for photo IDs and asked for blood donor cards. And they got to me and an individual came up to me and asked for my photo ID. And then asked for if I had a donor card. They said I did not. Um, they asked if I had ever donated blood before. And I said, you know, I haven't, not since I was 18, I haven't really been able to. And I'm a little nervous and a little excited. And um, the the next response was, why haven't you been able to? And I, mm. I've passed all the screenings at this point, right? I've passed two rounds of questions from two different organizations. I've had my blood tested. I've been re-swabbed. Uh, I've, I've seen the FDA announcement. And I just assumed I was in the clear. And so without really hesitating or thinking about it, I just responded, I'm a gay man. And immediately after I said mm-hmm. that, the look in the eyes of the person that I was speaking with changed uh, in, in, a, in a very clear way. Um, it became cold Mm. and 
the response back to me was, mm-hmm. well, you won't be donating today. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was shocked in that moment, but also looking back on it in a sort of hindsight kind of way, I knew what was coming next. Like I knew why I, there, there was no, there was no mystery in that moment of what could have possibly gone wrong in our conversation. Um, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I asked for clarification just kind of out of a moment of not knowing what to say. I just kind of said, I'm sorry. And the response back was, you won't be donating mm-hmm. today. And at that point I pulled out what I thought was the only kind of tool left in my belt, which was to say, you know, if this is because I'm a gay man, I know the FDA has recently relaxed the deferral on gay and bisexual men donating blood. And before I finished the word blood, I was interrupted. And the response was, I don't know what you think you know, but you will not be donating here today. There's such a level of shame in the response. Yeah. And it wasn't even, that was from their perspective, the end of that conversation, because as soon as they finished saying that, they walked away from me and walked to another staff member. And uh, that staff member kind of like leaned down to the person and they began speaking in very hushed tones. And they were gesturing at me from maybe eight or 10 feet away. And it was in that moment that I kind of remembered or realized that there were five or six other staff members in the room and there were uh, one or two other donors in the room. And all of that exchange had happened Mm within earshot of them all, um, that they were kind of looking Mm -hmm. in my direction. And I Mm. was upset and I kind of felt a little frantic. Like what, what happens next? Like I came here to donate, like what is going on right now? And I felt, I Mm. felt embarrassed. I had this moment Mm. where I was like, what happens now? What, what, what the hell is going on right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you kind of turned from a hero and someone who could help to someone who's being shunned, right? You're being, you're being shamed and rejected for something that you were, were welcome to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember kind of calling after that person just a little bit, just saying, listen, I would, I'd like to be a part of this conversation, Mm -hmm. whatever's happening between you and this other staff member. And they kind of took a step or two back towards me and they had my photo ID stretch, you know, kind of like, uh, stretched out, like, uh, they were, they were passing me my photo ID back and I just kind of grabbed it away from them hastily. And the response from them was, okay, well, I guess it's going to be like that as if I had done something to them. Right. And I just remember saying, listen, I didn't mean anything personally by the way I grabbed my ID from you, mm. but I hope you can appreciate that this moment right now feels very personal and I'm, I'm here to donate. I'm healthy. I'm a candidate. I don't, I don't know what's happening right now. When and, you when you were in that situation, did you so after you know it's obvious that you're going to be you're not going to be donating, and and these people aren't treating you the way that you would expect to be treated. When you did you have this sense of you wanted to ask for help from someone? You know what what crossed your mind in that in that exchange? Yeah, I did have that moment. I think I was I felt a little frantic in the kind of what what can I do next? Like right, like I don't want to. this is happening right now. And as soon as I'm out the door, it's done. Mm -hmm. But while I'm still here, it's not right. Like there must be, there must be someone who I can reason with. This is, this is, I'm, you know, I'm in Manhattan right now. This is there. They were at that moment, they were just, I believe announcing that they were going to be digging a mass grave on a small Island off of Manhattan Mm -hmm. for the bodies. 
And here I am, I'm doing what I can to donate what is hopefully a help to people who are in dire straits, who have no options. And, and I'm, and I'm being casually dismissed. That can't Mm -hmm. possibly be what happens next. Mm -hmm. That can't possibly be how this story ends. And so, uh, you know, I was like, I, I, I don't understand what's what what what's going on like why am i being rejected right now uh, and so they they offered to take me to a small office and make me wait uh mm-hmm. while i would while someone would come to speak to me and someone did um and it was it was somebody who was kind of the the manager of special donors uh that who was on that day and i could tell when they when they came into the room that they were ready for a fight a little bit there was a defensive tone mm-hmm. to it and i was upset too right like i i i yelled i i argued i i cried <gasps> Um, I had no idea. And the conversation lasted for about an hour at least. And um, it was, it was, it started with them kind of speaking at me, which was to say they were telling me about the history of HIV and the relationship it had Mm -hmm. with gay men donating blood as if as an adult gay man, I need to be reminded why that's in place. And, um, you know, the kind of politics that played into an, the last epidemic that was essentially ignored and, mm-hmm. you know, put on a, a population of people that were, that were ignored. Um, that history is, is relevant to us today as it was then. Um, and, you know, when I kind of pushed for why, why they weren't conforming with the FDA's new relaxed deferral, the response was, listen, we have policies and procedures to, to change and mm-hmm. to update. So we really can't, it's not like flipping a switch. You can't just suddenly accept these donations. And I didn't understand that, right? Like I'm not a phlebotomist. I'm not a medical professional. And I'll, all I mm-hmm. wanted to know was why, what, what is it actually that you need to change? Because I am qualified. Yeah. I know that I am. I've been cleared. And the FDA has already essentially said as much. And so they explained, listen, we'd have to update our computers. We'd have to update the questionnaire. We'd have to retrain our staff to understand who they can and cannot accept as a, as a, as a donor candidate. And I was like, what do you mean? Like I was asked the proper donor screening question. I was already mm-hmm. asked the question. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, listen, I don't know why you were asked the right, that, that question, but we're going to have to address that with our staff. They shouldn't have done that. I'm sitting here thinking, you're telling me it takes you time to retrain your staff to teach them how to treat people equally and maybe just use, you know, like a risk-based assessment. Uh, and they're already doing that. And you're saying, well, we got to stop that. Yeah. Um, and so the only the only things they could give me that moment in that moment were that it was a computer upgrade needed and it was a, a staff retraining. Mm-hmm. And, and, and eventually, as I think it became clear, um, this was obviously not going to happen today. I was not going to mm-hmm. be donating. Um, and there was nothing I could do. And I, I, I felt deflated. I, that is, that's kind of when I, I broke down. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think the individual who was speaking to me broke down a little bit too. Not, not emotionally, but the walls came down a little bit. And they said, listen, this sucks. I know mm-hmm. it does. Mm-hmm. We, we, as an organization, we've been fighting for this type of change to happen for years. Um, but you just can't you can't just do it because the FDA today says that you can. It takes time, um, and it really does need to come from the administrative level on down. So when they tell us that we can, when they tell us we can switch over, that's when we can do it. Mm-hmm. And I just like it still confounds me. Um, I do understand. I do understand that. I, listen, I'm not. I, I do understand that things need to happen in a way that's organized, and you can't just suddenly 
make huge dramatic changes to systems, but this in my mind is not a huge dramatic change. This is change a 12 to a three Mm -hmm. and make sure to remind your staff that they shouldn't be openly discriminating against people of any stripe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That shouldn't be, that shouldn't be a months long process, which is what they've described it as. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just, Um, it just the idea of the, the whole feeling in the room and how, how you were made to feel is, is really, I think a lot of this could have been avoided, you know, it would still be disappointing, but I think, it was about also their demeanor. The the last bit of my time in that small room talking to that individual were, were me kind of having to face the fact that I was going to have to walk back through that facility mm-hmm. and back through those staff members, um, knowing that they they clearly knew what had happened and that I was mm-hmm. I was going to have kind of like the I I was I'd been crying yeah. and I, I felt. Embarrassed doesn't even feel like it does it full justice just because it felt so, I felt vulnerable in that moment. Yeah. Um, I'm living in New York City and I'm a, I'm a gay man. And this is a city that I, I think of as home now. I've spent half my life here. And this is meant to be a kind of progressive, like little house on the hill that mm-hmm. people can point to and say, look at that. That's how people can live together. That's how people from everywhere can yeah. live together. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Um, and you know, governor Cuomo had been on TV, uh, just very recently he was saying, you know, we are one New York, we are one people and we are fighting this together. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there, the one person in that room that is being sent away for no good reason. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did, I left Mm -hmm. and I, I got home and I walked through the door and my husband was working and he was in a conference call and I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything until the end of the day to him. He didn't know. Mm. Um, he kind of just looked up and just kind of gave me like a, a nod, like, oh, you're back. That's great. And we'll talk about it later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't say really anything to, I think I talked to my mom and maybe a, a couple of very close friends about what had happened. Um, and for a for a week, I didn't really talk to anybody about what had happened. Oh, really? Um, Were, no, do you know what I, that was about? I I didn't know what to say. I didn't. You know, I, I'm fortunate. I'm this year. I'm a thirty something white gay male in New York City. Like I have faced far less adversity than a lot of my queer peers, mm-hmm. and I I recognize that privilege, and I don't for a minute want to. Um, minimize the struggle that so many have gone through. I, I wanted to help and I was qualified to help and I was rejected for very wrong reasons and in, an, and in a really unacceptable way. But I also wanted to make sure that, it, again, if I was going to say anything in a broader way to my family, to my friends, I didn't want it to just be like, Meh, you know, like, well, what was me? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm just, um, and I felt, I don't know, I also just still felt that kind of sense of disbelief Mm -hmm. that it happened Mm -hmm. or that it had any real, I don't know. Well, it it is interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, did you also feel protective of yourself? Yeah, I did. Um, I just, I knew that once I said it out loud, it was all real, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, that rejection, that reality was more real, the more people who knew it. When you told your husband eventually, what did he say? He hugged me. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I'll be honest, there, there are parts of that exchange. I don't, I, I think we just hugged for a little while and I just kind of like, I don't, I, I'm still un, a little uncomfortable kind of like rehashing the feelings that I've gone through as a result of it. Mm. Um, just the embarrassment. <laughs> I still feel my knee jerk reaction is still to feel a little shy and embarrassed about the fact that it happened. Mm, interesting. Um, well, because I know that you post a lot and you've kept your friends and your Facebook friends very updated on your status and your health. And so I think a lot of people knew that you were going to go donate. Is that right? Yeah. So I think it was kind of a week after it had happened uh, or coming up on and a bunch of my family and friends were starting to just kind of text and be like, listen, did you donate? How was it? What's going on? I haven't heard from you. And one night, and uh, this <laughs> I was definitely, uh, I was ignoring my husband for lack of a better term for a full night when I sat down with my notes app open on my phone and just started typing the experience that had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it and I rewrote it. And then I would stop for a half an hour and then I would go back and reread it. And I was up in bed that night, like my husband's asleep and I've got the light of my iPhone <laughs> on and I'm just typing away. And just I just wanted to know that the experience I had was kind of properly captured. And I just wanted to tell my family and friends, this is what happened. I wanted to help and I was here to help and I can't. Mm -hmm. And I posted it the next morning uh, with just a picture of myself thinking, okay, well now they'll know and that's it. And by the end of that day, it had been shared a thousand times. And I was like, that is nuts. That is crazy. Had that ever happened to you before? No, no. <laughs> I was like, no. Uh, it was it was so kind of like mind blowing. I had received a bunch of messages from people that day, many of whom I didn't know, mm. that were just supportive and just kind of like, how dare they? Mm. And like, and good for you. And there were it was so affirming, and it was really lovely. And I, I just I, I felt this this I felt lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was there was a catharsis to it. And, uh, you know, on that was, that was a Friday and Friday night I went to bed and Friday, Saturday morning I woke up and I opened my phone and it had been shared, uh, like 3,500 times. <laughs> and I was like, this is what is happening. <laughs> and that day and that weekend, every hour it was shared basically 500 or a thousand times. And, uh, to date it's been shared 25,000 times wow. and 28,000 people have liked it. Holy moly. And I, I have, I don't even know what to say about that. It was, it was surreal. I received hundreds of messages from people from all over the country, and in fact, from many countries. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of like messages of solidarity, messages of support, saying, "I'm gonna, I'm sharing your experience because I want, I want this to end. This is, this is ludicrous." Mm-hmm. Things. It was. I had people reaching out to me. I had. I've since spoken to. <laughs> the director of communications at Glad. I've spoken to my I've spoken to my state senator who who called me. Um, wow. I've, I've been able to speak to like you know I, I was on Good Morning America. Like I've had the experiences that have happened as a result of me making that Facebook post have been beyond my wildest imaginings when I was writing that little description about what happened to me on that day. Sure. And do you understand, so you've got these personal messages and people who kind of have a connection to you or saw the Facebook post, and then you've got this kind of more media focus on you. What what do you make of the media focus? And do you, do you like that they, the way that they're treating your story for the most part? For the most part? Absolutely. I think I've been, I'm, I'm, I just have to continue to 
to to say that I'm grateful for it. That the mm-hmm. the media attention um, has been so unexpected and so special to be able to share my experience at this time, to be able to communicate uh, about something that I feel passionately about, um, to be able to put a message out there. And quite honestly, to make sure that every time this story is retold by someone in the media, it means that someone is reaching out to the FDA and making them respond to this deferral, that Mm -hmm. it's making them go on the record, even if it's to say no comment. To put the pressure on the FDA, um, and to know that you know I'm able to contribute in any small way to an effort that's being you know th- th- to a flag that's being carried by so many. Um, you know, the same week that my post was going viral and they were inviting me to speak on uh, on on Good Morning America, hundreds and hundreds of medical professionals penned a letter to the FDA asking them to lift this deferral and switch to a risk based assessment. And I was oh, reading, wow. one of the one of the people who who wrote that letter reached out to me, and we've had a bit of a back and forth exchange, and um, it's just been overwhelming, but it's been phenomenal. And and personally, the messages that have been coming in my direction and have expressed everything from, listen, I had an eighty year old grandmother write me and say, all I want to do is give you a hug right now, and and thank you mm-hmm. so much, and if I you know I. I have grandchildren and all I want them to do is grow up in a world where everyone is treated fairly and equally and, and thanking me for standing up for something, which was quite frankly, not what I was initially trying to do. I was trying to update my family and friends. Um, (laughs) But it's also been, it's been an honor to be able to stand up and to speak and have a voice that is heard. Mm -hmm. What Um, a difference from when you were 18 and what do you think that 18 year old you would have made of this? So to go from that 18-year-old who was terrified about having to put, you know, pen to paper, uh, you know, next to a question that didn't even apply to me in that moment, but I knew would one day, to somebody who is able to very publicly speak about who I am in a way that is, yes, defensive, but also declarative and Mm -hmm. um, forceful and saying, you know... this is who I am. There are so many more like me. And all we want to do right now in this time is help, right? Like Mm -hmm. to be able to stand up and have a voice on any sort of stage and say, you know what? The virus didn't care that I'm gay. Why does the federal government, when we're all just trying to help, when we're all just trying to fight this? Mm -hmm. Um, And your husband, just your husband, what does he make of all this attention? He's, he's very supportive. He's been, right by my side and right off camera. <laughs> He's like, just like, please keep me out of this. Uh, you know, is he uh, sort of, is he sort of surprised by the whirlwind? Yeah, for sure. And he's, you know, he, he likes to, he teases me a little bit and he absolutely kind of like keeps me like centered and grounded in these experiences. But then I catch him FaceTiming with his family and friends when I'm in another room and I hear him kind of like bragging on me a little bit. And it's very, very (laughs) sweet of him. Uh, He, you know, I'm so fortunate that my family has always been incredibly supportive of me. I came out to my mom when I was 16 years old and I was terrified to do it. And she embraced me um, in a way that I, I never, I, I didn't know what to expect. And she is still to this day, 
just like my biggest fan and supporter. And she has been so wonderful through this and checking in on me every day and just kind of wanting to repost everything that happens. And um, (laughs) my sister is great too. Like I've just, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I really, I really do feel, uh, you know, this kind of pervasive sense of gratitude that's that I have a kind of a network of support, a little village of support around me that has allowed me to feel like I can speak without fear. Mm-hmm. And you have sort of a happy ending to this this plasma donation story, don't you? I do. Um, as a result of my post going wide out there, uh, a lead nurse from Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is uh, an independent hospital in Manhattan, uh, saw my post and she reached out to me and asked me to call her. And I did. And she invited me to come in and donate at their hospital, which I did last week. Um, <laughs> and what was that experience like? That was so cool. The staff was incredible. And they were, she, she walked me through the whole process. Um, she described basically that because they were an independent hospital, and because they were, they were, um, they were recognized by the FDA, but they weren't kind of uh, I don't. I won't be able to describe it as as adequately or as articulately as she could, but that they were able to mm-hmm. very efficiently and effectively change their systems uh, without any delay. And their questionnaire had been updated. Their staff had been retrained. Whatever that whatever mm, that is, yeah. um, and that they were excited to receive the donations. Um, you know, it's one hospital mm-hmm. out of hundreds upon hundreds across this country, um, but it. Uh, it, it made a huge impact on me, and I'm so excited that I was able to ultimately donate. Mm-hmm. I feel like was I mean, my impression would be that that would be a, a healing, like kind of a healing antidote to your earlier experience. Yeah, it really was. I, um, you know, the nurses that were around me while I was donating were just just incredible, and um, I I don't know, I felt really. I felt really appreciative. I felt happy um, to be able to mm-hmm. contribute to, I don't, how do you describe feeling like a regular person? <laughs> like it does, <laughs> I didn't feel anything beyond just knowing that I was doing the same thing that the person, you know, two, two like little hospital beds down from me was doing. And that it was just kind of mm-hmm. like, cool, we're part of the same club <laughs> of humans. Well, right. That's an interesting <laughs> point. Should should we be grateful for being made to feel like a regular person? Yeah, I feel like I'm trying to drum up all of these, like, what does it feel to be just the same as everyone else? And it doesn't feel superhuman, for sure. I can tell you that it feels it feels pretty regular. I mean, when I'm in my when I'm in more reflective moments, and those are usually those moments late night when I'm supposed to be asleep, but I'm usually like writing something for myself, just to kind of like get Mm. thoughts out of my head and put them in a sequence that makes sense. Those are the moments when I can reflect and really kind of feel that that gratitude in a in a tangible way almost that I can just feel it in my body that I'm just so mm-hmm. grateful to have been able to you know be a type of person that I'm that I've never been allowed to be even if it seems mm-hmm. kind of so so silly and so asinine and so simple that I, it's just about donating plasma but like that ability to help in any way when right now it's so easy to feel helpless um, that, that feeling is, I don't want that feeling to go away. Um, I've been really, really, uh, fortunate to be able to 
have these experiences and to be able to communicate at a time when we're all trapped inside, right? I get to feel like my voice Mm -hmm. leaves my apartment and travels out and touches people, or I get to contribute. And I, that's the feeling that is just surreal. And I don't really know how to describe that properly yet. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very unique experience. What happens now? Are you, are things, do they feel like they're settling back down at all? I, I think this has in me awoken a sense that I want to continue some level of advocacy in whatever way that I can. I've never really Mm -hmm. been particularly active on that level. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know what'll come next, but I, um, I have been speaking with my state Senator and I would like to find ways that I can connect with the efforts that he and other, uh, other senators are working to communicate with the FDA. And I have been speaking with, um, Lambda Legal about the ways in which we can try to affect positive change in the practices of blood banks and the way that they treat queer people who are eligible candidates and even people that they may have to turn away for, um, for, you know, Mm -hmm. reasons that follow the guidelines that they have to follow. Um, and I've been speaking with somebody about the potential of trying to organize, uh, a form of blood bank that would allow, you know, queer allies to, uh, accompany their, you know, their friends to donate on their behalf in a very visible way. I'm just trying to do things that might, might affect positive change. And that feeling of being able to be active is one that I've, I've never really experienced as I was just describing. And, um, I want that to continue. So I don't know what happens next, but I know the feelings I want to happen next and the type of action that I want to try to take. Yeah. So this experience came and found you and it sounds like it activated you. And now it seems like you like it. You're you're up for the the task. Yeah, I really am. And I want to continue. I want to continue to fight. If, you know, I think that I think that the end of this particular deferral is with within arm's reach. Um, mm-hmm. In response to the appearance I had on Good Morning America, the FDA announced uh, that they were going to be exploring a pilot program to uh, study whether or not, you know, men who have sex with men could donate uh, and they could switch to a risk-based system in terms of qualifying donors. And that is an announcement that they have never made before. And surely Mm -hmm. that is out of the kind of pressure that they have been under, not just because of what what I did, but because of these doctors who are coming forward and saying it's time. And because of people like Andy Cohen, who are, have a very visible platform who are coming out and saying, why can't I help right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that I pressure saw, right I now. saw him in the news and I remember thinking, wait a minute, but Lucas's story came first. <laughs> I, I sent like, him my story. I sent him my, my post and I was like, you know, I bet he didn't see it, but I would love to take credit for him coming and, out. Yeah, exactly. I, no, I, I thought about that. that he's using his platform to advocate and I'm so grateful to him. And if he wants to have me on Watch What Happens Live so that, you know, two gay men can talk about these things, I'm fine with it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally. But yeah, so I, you know, I think, you know, the FDA feels the pressure to the point where they're willing to announce this pilot program. And I think it gives medical professionals across this country a perfect moment to say, we don't need that pilot program right now. The data is in and clear. This is, this is a global health Mm -hmm. crisis we're in and we need all the help we can get. And if we're going to fight this, we need to do it together. And so I'm really hopeful that this is, this is a cause that's within arm's reach of success. 
Um, and so I want to continue to work mm-hmm. with that. And then beyond, who knows? I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, you have definitely found yourself in the middle of a watershed moment with your own watershed moment. How wonderful to wake up in your inbox and your Facebook messages are just like blowing up with people telling you how you've affected them. I mean, that must just be an unparalleled feeling. I'm still trying to read through and respond to them. <laughs> I'm really trying to like I'm really trying not to take this particular moment which I didn't anticipate coming for granted. I really want to appreciate every bit of it. And you know, I remember having this moment I was talking to a friend of mine who's had, you know, he's a writer and he's had some success with his writing and as a result, he's had kind of, you know, people reach out to him in a public way and I just remember saying, "Listen, I don't want to screw this up. Like this is a moment that's this is this is 15 minutes of advocacy in a very public way that I'm having right now and I have no experience. This is not a world I live in. Um I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to miss it. I love having you on and um take good care of yourself and I hope you have some nice downtime with your husband and your dog. I have loved speaking with you and and I'm so grateful to you. So thank you so much for inviting me to share. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.